Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Um, Welcome to Watertown Evangelical Free Church. I am Bethany Lothar, our children's ministry director, and I just want to welcome you guys to church this morning um, and just want to encourage you as we get into our time of worship together. Um, There's a lot of things that we can hope in in this world, um, and a lot of those things of this world will leave us empty. And the one thing that we can hope in is the Lord, and he is good, and he is faithful, um, and he will never, ever put us to shame. And so as we come off of our Christmas season, as we laid that foundation of who Jesus is and why he came, I encourage us as we get into this last Sunday of the year and go into this next year of 2024, um, that we'd be encouraged and we would go into worship together. And so last night I was reading this and I just want to share it um, as we get into our time of worship this morning. Um, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, by whom consent by, sorry, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And so I encourage you guys, as we come off of this Christmas season and we go into this next year, that we would come in and get to know God deeply, that we get to know his hope deeply, and that as we start our worship tonight, or this morning, I mean, as we come together, that we would just reflect on his goodness and his love um, and his hope that will never, ever leave us or keep us um, or put us to shame. So let us pray this morning as we come together. Um, Father God, you are good. You are faithful. You are pure. You are gracious. You are loving. You're all-knowing, all-powerful. And you love us deeply. And I pray, Lord, that as we come in and we worship you together as a body of believers, that you would just teach us, that you would mature us, that you would grow us, and that we would be able to just trust in the hope that never, ever fails, Lord, and we love you. So let's worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and uh, thank you. Yeah, worship team, thank you very much for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, Good morning for, uh, oh, hey, nice work, for New Year's Eve. That was impressive. Happy New Year. And uh, welcome. If you are new, whether you're joining us online or in person, uh, my name is Bruce Strugsma. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. I'm glad you are joining us as we start our new year a day early. Uh, We wrapped up Christmas and we are starting in a new year. And uh, for me, that means a new new sermon series. For us, that means a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of Judges. And I'm titling this series, we've titled it, Case Studies in Chaos. And I don't know about you, but if you just survived the week between Christmas and New Year's, you know what chaos is. There's a little bit of you wake up on Tuesday morning and you're not sure if it's Tuesday morning or Thursday morning or Friday or last Thursday. I have no idea. I know this is one of those days in between Christmas and New Year where the rules don't matter and everything's made up on the spot, right? Uh, We were up north for a few days and chaos reigned, living with family. We stayed at a, at a Verbo. It was, a, it was an old elementary school turned into a, a Verbo. So we stayed in an elementary school classroom. Why not? And the roads were horrible, so why not? And you know, chaos, it just seems to be everywhere. And so I thought, what an appropriate time to start looking at the book of Judges. 
because the book of Judges is all about chaos. It's all about chaos. The the whole thing just from the get-go falls apart. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can find because I think a lot of us have had times in our life that have been nothing but chaos. Uh, Where it seems like from day one, things just fall apart. Ed, in his prayer time, acknowledged there are some of us that are coming to the end of 2023, ready to leave 2023 in the rearview mirror. Others, maybe it was the best year ever, uh, you know, and we'd never know what we're stepping into next. So here we go. And as we look at this book, I want us to keep in mind a very specific verse. If I were to pick one verse from the book of Judges to kind of sum up the entire book, it would be this verse. It's from Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's kind of... If I were to pick one verse, one thesis statement, if you will, one summary statement for the book of Judges, there it is. Sound familiar? I mean, I feel like, again, not just in my family and not just during the Christmas season, but I think there's a lot of us in our world today that live under that mantra. There is no king of my life. There's no queen of my life. I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. And anytime you get that adaptable. You get chaos. You get chaos. If there's nothing tying us together, there's no uniform truth or reality, you get chaos. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as always, whenever we start a look at a book of the Bible, I'm a big fan of taking in the bigger picture, taking in the context. I hope, I hope that someday, this all becomes one of those things you're like, yes, yes, Bruce, move on, we get it. Um, but because there's some that maybe this is new information, I think it's important. And so we're gonna kind of back up. I'm not gonna take too much time on this, but you know, we have the book of Genesis, which kind of goes from the creation of the world all the way up through Joseph, right? So you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob who gets renamed Israel and his son, Joseph. And they end up with Israel in Egypt. And Exodus starts, and we learned that over time in Egypt, the, the Egyptian leadership went from caring and respecting for the people of Israel to enslaving them. And we get the story of Moses leading the people of Israel out of that bondage and slavery and leading them towards the promised land. And then we get the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite book in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which goes through all the laws of, okay, you're a free people now. You're you're a people of God. How are you going to live? And we see in the book of Leviticus, kind of the big thing is that uh, the, the Levites are formed, hence Leviticus. We see that as Moses has led them out, he's kind of set aside, God has set aside the Levites and saying, you are going to be the spiritual leaders of my people. And Moses, you're going to be kind of the political, if you will, or the, the government leader. Okay, so that's, that's Leviticus. And they, they end up on the steps of the promised land. And there's kind of a pivotal scene in there where they send in 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go in and spy out this new land. Check it out. And they come back, and 10 of them come back and say, we can't go there. There's giants in the land. You know, we can't go there. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, no, 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 greater is he that is with us Then he was with them. Yes, there are giants in the land, but look at how beautiful it is, and God has given it to us. Let's go. 
The people of Israel side with the ten, and God rebukes them and says, now this generation, you will die in the wilderness. You will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies out. Sidebar, they, in that moment, they go, okay, okay, we're sorry, we'll go. And God says, nope, too late, kind of like a parent, nope, too late. And they go anyway, and they get defeated, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That is the book of Numbers, okay? Which is a horrible name for that book because it's really about that 40 years in the wilderness, and we think it's nothing but Numbers, right? So it's not just Numbers, it's about their wilderness wandering for 40 years, 40 years they're in the wilderness. And then if you're keeping track in your head, we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is Moses' last words. And in Deuteronomy, Moses repeats the law in four sermons for the people before they enter the land. And then we land in Joshua. And Joshua tells the story of Joshua taking over from Moses. Joshua, remember, being one of those two positive spies, takes over for Moses, and they enter the promised land, and they conquer the promised land in the book of Joshua. Okay, they conquer, he becomes the spiritual leader, the judge, the first judge of Israel. And Moses, uh, Moses has set up the priesthood, sorry, so it's not really the spiritual leader, but he, he takes over from Moses that leadership role of the people. And he takes over judging or leading Israel as they capture the promised land. And, and uh, I'm gonna quote a few times this morning a biblical historian by the name of David Howard, um, David Howard was a professor of mine at Bethel Seminary uh, who has written several books about the time of the judges in the Old Testament. And he, and he describes the book of Joshua this way. Joshua ends on a peaceful note with every family settling down on the land it had inherited. And so here you get Joshua. We get to the end and Joshua's standing before him and they go out, it says, and they settle on the land they've inherited. They've conquered it and they've settled. And here, it should be this time where, where Israel enters into its golden age. God is king in Israel, they have conquered the promised land, and now all they have to do is live in that land that God has given them and reap the rewards of obedience to their God. And the Bible ends there and that's the end. Except we end up with the first couple chapters of Judges, which show that unlike sitcoms, real life rarely ends so neat and tidy with a bow. But the idea was that they had entered the promised land and had more or less taken captive the land that had been promised to them. But then we enter the time of the Judges when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the first chapter of the book of Judges really parallels the last chapters of the book of Joshua. And if we read them looking back and forth, we see that not everything ended as neat and tidy as maybe we thought. We see that Israel, while it took the land, it didn't really take it all the way. In other words, the sins of the previous generation have a tendency to come back again and again and again and the previous generation didn't really follow God completely and entire in, the, in his entirety. And so while they're in their land and on a peaceful note, we also see that they're not alone. They haven't completely conquered the land like God had called them to. They hadn't completely followed God. There were times when God said, drive them out. And they said, well, how about if we just kind of drive them out? And we enter the time of Judges. And so we're going to start this morning looking at Joshua. Joshua, the first judge, but also we're going to look at Israel's failures. 
uh, and how they kind of go hand in hand. And so again, like I said, Joshua has taken over from Moses and, and we know that Joshua was one of those tribes that came back with one of the positive reports. And so while the rest of that generation, Moses and Aaron and, and the generation dies in the wilderness, Joshua and Caleb come in and help conquer the land. Moses is denied entry for his own sins and Joshua takes over. So this new generation enters the land, but they continue the same pattern as their parents. They conquer the land, sort of. They obey God mostly, but really they obey God when it's convenient and they fail to completely take the land that was set aside for them. And so here we are at the end of Joshua and Joshua who has led Israel through this conquest stands before them in Joshua chapter 24 and he gives them a a speech that I think is is fairly well known for most of us. In verses 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then there's a little bit of back and forth that we're gonna kind of skip between Joshua and the people. We'll come back to it in a minute. And then he ends with this. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. And, and, and we put a bow on it and it's, it's nice and neat and tidy and it ends. But I think we see our first lesson here in the time of Joshua. Our first lesson from chaos, our first case study, if you will. The first first lesson is this, it's the temptation to serve the gods around us because that really hasn't changed. We like to think that we have developed as Christians, as people who have more at our disposal in scripture than the people before us. We like to think that we've kind of matured beyond this. You know, I'm not tempted to serve the gods of Egypt, therefore I'm fine. And in fact, we can kind of look at those old pagan deities and kind of scornfully look at people and go, how could you have served that? And yet I would argue that we do the same thing as the people of Israel. We are tempted to serve the gods of our past. We have these gods in our past that that might not be wood or stone. We might not call them things like Ra and Baal and Ashtoreth. But I do think there are still gods in our past that we are tempted to serve. Things that we lift up to maybe a higher status than they deserve. Because you cannot go part way with God. In fact, that idea is woven throughout scripture. We'll see it in Israel where people keep wanting to add to God. We want to serve God and we want to serve Baal. We want to serve God and we want to serve Ashtoreth. We want to serve God and we want to serve the gods of those around us. And we see it go on and on where it's going to be a theme as as the kings take over. After the judges will come the kings and we'll see the kings time and time again and they'll describe a good king or a bad king largely in how they deal with the gods around them. And they'll say things like, he was a good king who tore down the high places. But oftentimes they'll say, he was a good king who served the Lord, but he didn't really tear down all the high places. They continued to serve the other gods, or or maybe they started sacrificing to God at the high places of the other gods. 
And this pattern continues where we're going to get into uh, the New Testament. We're going to see it again and again where God is going to say, you need to choose who you will serve. And Joshua is putting that question to the people of Israel. Who are you going to serve? Verse 15, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. It's a choice. It's a choice that he's putting to them. He's going, who, who do you want to serve? And, and by the way, if, if serving the Lord, if serving Yahweh, if serving the one true God seems undesirable to you, then choose who you will serve. Because you can't serve both. This is, this is an either or, not a both and conversation. And the first gods he lists is the gods beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the past. For the Israelites, the temptation to serve the Egyptian gods was still there even though at times they weren't necessarily talking about the Egyptian gods. In fact, as we go through Numbers, we read in, in both Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers some of my favorite complaints of the people of Israel. And, and it's really easy to laugh at them, and, and I do, and I think they in some ways kind of deserve it for some of the things they were complaining about, until I remember that I am guilty of complaining about a lot of the same things too, when God doesn't do exactly what I want. Well, come on, God. Exodus 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Or in Exodus 16, 3, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death which I think is really funny considering what they've gone through. Here they've seen a God who has plundered the Egyptians, conquered all of their gods. If you look back and you read through the plagues of Egypt, they are all directly attacking the gods of Egypt. God has shown that the Egyptian gods are incompetent and he has brought them across the Red Sea, defeated not only their gods, but their king and their army. And what is their first response? Ugh. Well, now there's no food. We should have just died in Egypt. And we all have the same tendency to look back on our past and be in these awful situations and look back kind of with that rose-colored glasses. How quickly the Israelites forget that they were slaves, that what brought Moses to free them from Egypt was their groaning in slavery, their desire for God to bring them out. And now he has done that and they look around and it isn't exactly what they thought it would look like and how they go, well, there were more graves in Egypt, we might as well have died there, which is just a great complaint. There's not enough graves in the wilderness, let's go back. And so where do we do the same thing? Where do we look back on the past with rose-tinted glasses? And we wish for things that back then we had. Now, some of the things that the Israelites are wishing for, food and safety and protection, those are not bad things, it's the, it's the way they want them. They want them on their terms. They want them on their terms. They want God to act the way they want God to act. They want to go back to Egypt and God goes, that's not a good place. I called you out of there for a reason. I'm bringing you into this new land. And right now you're in the wilderness and the wilderness doesn't feel fun. But you can't see where I'm taking you down the road. And so right now you're in a spot that is worse than the place you were on the surface. But, but this is where I am. This is where I am. 
And you keep looking back. And I think we do the same thing when we look back on our past and we remember the good old days, the glory days. You know, maybe we remember back when, when we could, uh, you know, when the Ten Commandments were posted in our courthouses or when Bibles were available everywhere. And, and we go, oh, wasn't it great back then? And we forget the ways that it wasn't so great. And, and those are good things. We want a country that follows God, but if we're, if we're pursuing a system instead of pursuing God, we might be missing what God is doing today because we're so busy pining for what we think we had back then. When I think if we're honest, if we look back to those times that while we had some great things as Christians in our country, we also had some not great things that we as Christians were doing. And we need to not look back entirely with rose-colored glasses and worship the gods of the past, desiring that past to come back again. Instead, looking around and going, I might not like where I'm at, I might not even like where our country is at in some ways, but this is where God has put me. And if God can move today, I'm gonna to trust God to move today. And I'm gonna trust God to move in his way and not keep looking back for the past that I want, which might not be what God is calling me to today. We can look back to the gods of our past, the gods of our history. But there were other gods that were temptations for Israel that Joshua brings up, not just the gods of the past. He gives them the other option. The gods of the Amorites, the gods of the world around you, because that's another one that's tempting for us. We've, I think we've talked about this before, the idea of looking to adding things to God. Because the temptation for Israel as they move into this promised land is gonna to be to add to God. I want, I want my God who brought me out of Egypt, but I want a God that's a little more controllable. So I'm gonna to add to my God, Asherah. I'm gonna to add to my God, Baal. I'm gonna to add to my God, the gods of the world around me. And I think we do the same thing. We add to our God, our gospel, our Jesus, the God of power, the God of fame, the God of prestige, the God of wealth. I can have them both. I can, I can love the Lord my God and I can pursue these other things. And I think we get tempted to fall into the same temptation as the Israelites, to worship the gods of the world around us and God wants us entirely. And those other things that might be good, he wants us to not have those be our priority. He wants us entirely. Jesus says it in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus is talking about money there, but I think we can put other things in that blank. We can put other gods of our world, you know, popularity, power, prestige, fame. You cannot serve both God and fame. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and power. Who will we serve? Will we serve the gods of our past, the gods of the world we live in today, or like Joshua, will we choose for ourselves this day whom we will serve? Will we say like Joshua, Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and acknowledge that it's a choice we have to make. And it's a choice we have to make regularly to get up each day and say, who is gonna be my God today? Who am I gonna live my life in allegiance to? Am I gonna be pursuing something from my past that I need to let go of and trust the God of today? Or am I gonna be pursuing something that the world around me tells is significant? Or do I need to let go of that and choose to trust God today even if I don't have any of those things? And a similar scene takes place in Judges. 
And we're going to go back to those verses in between. But we're going to see them in Judges because the first couple chapters of Judges parallel the last couple of chapters of Joshua. In fact, in some ways, they're almost word for word. And we could almost lay them over top of each other. So now we're going to jump into Judges, chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. We've read that. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, at Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And then we get to the big reveal. The big reveal in the next verse. The big reveal that kind of sets in motion the time of the judges. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And so this, this is the transition. This is the setup. This is the moment that we as readers of the book of Judges should realize that something is about to change. And just like we saw a, a generation wander in the wilderness and another generation took over, now that generation that has seen God do stuff, they're going to pass away and another generation is going to come. Another generation who does not know what the Lord had done for Israel. And this should be a warning for us that we cannot force the next generation to follow the Lord. This should be a warning to all of us as parents, both literal parents and spiritual parents of the next generation. We cannot force somebody to follow God the way we want. We need to encourage them. We need to pray for them. We need to disciple them. We need to walk with them. But eventually, that generation is going to have to take over and do it on their own. And the question is, how have we done at setting them up? How have we done at setting up the next generation to pursue the Lord? And when I read verse 10, I don't see a lot of blame to be placed. I, let me rephrase that. I don't see all of the blame to be placed on the next generation. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How could they not know? And scripture in another place will tell us that people don't know because nobody tells them. How could they not know unless nobody had told them? And so we see a generation come in not knowing. We must encourage our next generation to follow the Lord. And we do that best when we model what a Christ-centric and a Christ-alone relationship with God looks like. So that when our kids, or again, both literal or spiritual, that when our kids find themselves not having maybe all the things we had, or maybe having different things than what we had, they know that A, if they don't have those things, they can still follow the Lord. Or that if they have other things that we didn't have, other challenges, other blessings, they know to trust the Lord in those as well. That those don't change their relationship with God because their relationship with God is based on Christ alone. And we need to model that for the next generation. We need to model that and show that so that when they take over, they know the Lord and we don't have a repeat of Judges 2.10. They know the Lord and they know what he has done for his people. 
And this transition sets in motion the pattern that will guide the rest of the book of Judges. And so I'm going to talk a little bit here about the cycle of the Judges. And this is a cycle we are going to see again and again and again and again. And as I've read a book, there's an author who talks about in relationships, we can get in in what's called the crazy cycle. We can get in this cycles. And the crazy cycle is where I am disrespectful to somebody and they feel disrespected, so they act back to me disrespectfully or unlovingly. And I feel unloved or disrespected, and how do I respond? I get disrespectful again. And we can get in these cycles. And what does it take to break a crazy cycle? Somebody to step up and break the cycle. That when I'm disrespected or I'm treated unloving, I step in and I go, time out. That felt disrespectful. That felt unloving. Did I do something to cause that? And I'm going to seek to reconcile this instead of piling on and building the cycle. And if we want to break this cycle, it's the same thing. If we want to break a cycle of disobedience and generationally walking away from God, a generation needs to step up and say, time out, I'm going to break the cycle. So let's look at this cycle because generational change is going to happen and a new generation rises up in Israel. And if we could, I'd go back and, you know, like we label our generations. We have we have the, and, and forgive me if I get these wrong, but we have the, the boomers, then we have Gen X, then we have the millennials, and then we have Gen Z, right? And, and we have these labels for generations. If I could go back and label the generations back then, we'd have the Exodus generation that walked out of Egypt. And then we have the wandering generation that wandered in the wilderness and conquered the land of Israel. And now we have the tribal generation. We have a tribal generation that, that doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know what he has done. And so what do they care about? Their family and them. And as we go through Judges, we're gonna see, it's gonna feel like an incredible amount of history is happening because there's gonna be story after story after story after story after story. And in reality, very few of these Judges impact the entire country. And so while one tribe is in one part of the Judges cycle, another tribe is experiencing a different part of the Judges cycle. And they can be happening concurrently, right? Because they're very tribal. They're a very tribal generation. These are the ones that grew up in a tribalized Israel. After Joshua, the conquering of Israel, people scatter. Unity is lost. And before we get too harsh on them, reminder from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was the call to the wandering generation on how they developed their kids. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And yet Joshua tells us that a whole generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. And I think there was a generational failure here on both sides. One generation that came in and took the promised land and didn't talk about it with their kids and didn't write it on the door frames of their homes and didn't wander the country pointing to the different things. As they enter the promised land, they build all these monuments that they're supposed to talk about with their kids when they walk. This is what the Lord did. Generational sin, I would argue, is rarely only the fault of the next generation. The parents were to raise up their kids to follow the Lord and they do not do it. And Joshua calls them out 
when Joshua is handing off from the Exodus generation to the wandering generation, or yeah, when he's handing it off, he says to the people in Joshua 24, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. That's his warning to them. You won't be able to do it. You know, he says, choose who you, this day who you will serve. And they say, we will serve the Lord. And he says, no, you won't. You won't do it. You're going to rebel. And then we see the consequences. And so we see this cycle and judges continue from the previous generation where they did it as a whole population. Now they're doing it in tribal form. They're perpetuating this crazy cycle. And the first step in that cycle is apostasy. Apostasy, a turning away from the Lord, a rejection of his commandments. We read this in Joshua 2.10, so I'm not gonna read it again. But we read that, this turning away from the Lord. A whole generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done. And back to our biblical historian. We see that the warnings repeated, repeatedly sounded against foreign religious entanglements were well-spoken since Israel repeatedly turned away from the Lord to follow after the Canaanite gods. They're going to keep doing it. They're going to do it again and again and again and again and again. Because it wasn't modeled for them. Because when one group of people experienced that in the wilderness, this turning away from God and turning towards a golden calf, this turning away from God and ignoring his promises, this turning away from Moses and Aaron and trying to develop their own priesthood, when they saw that modeled, the next generation picked up on it. And one quick clarification. When Joshua warns against foreign entanglements, he's not warning against the foreigners, he's warning against their gods. All throughout the Exodus, we see that Israel has been bringing other people along with them who have turned to God and left their gods behind. When they leave Egypt, they don't leave Egypt alone. There are Egyptians who come out with Israel and they become followers of God. And when they come into the promised land, the idea was all along that you would be a light and a blessing to my people, to the entire world. And people would turn to me. So the, the, the warning was not, um, don't engage with foreigners. The warning was, don't engage with their gods. Bring them in. Bring them in to follow me. The call is against the foreign gods, the foreign religious entanglements. And we'll see that what this leads to is the next step after apostasy is servitude. Because you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus talks about that. And Paul also talks about, he says, you will either serve one and be slaved, or you will either be slave to one or you'll be enslaved to the other. You can't serve two. And so what happens is servitude to these false gods and to these false kingdoms. Judges 2, verses 12 through 14. They forsook the Lord the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. 
the issue at its core was that Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. And instead, they turn and serve foreign other, go- other foreign gods, and God says, okay, then serve them. Then serve them and see what happens because those are not real gods who will help you and you're gonna be conquered and you're gonna be enslaved to those gods. And the promise all along had been for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. The call all along was the opposite, that others were supposed to see that the God in Israel was real and turn away from their false gods and come to follow God. When Abraham was told, you will be a blessing to all nations. And instead, they serve the other gods. They forget what God has done. And I think oftentimes, again, we do the same thing. Anytime we start to lift up things above God, we start to lift up these other entanglements. We start to lift up these things and say, not only do you have to follow my God, but you have to follow my God my way. You have to go to the right church. You have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. We try to make God transactional. God, if I follow you and I do all the things, if I pray enough, if I go to church enough, if I read the right Bible, if I believe the right things, then you have to do these things for me. And that's not how God works. And that is a false view of God and that leads to servitude. And pretty soon we find ourselves serving religion, serving a checklist, serving this idea that if I do it well enough, God has to. God has to. And that is a false view of God. And Paul warns us about this, like I said, Romans 16, Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Because when we turn and when we serve God alone, we don't find servitude the way Israel found servitude. We find true freedom. Where we can walk into whatever chaos faces us with confidence because we have God with us. And if God is with us, nothing can be against us. And I can walk into the face of death confidently if I have God with me because that is all I need. That is all I need. And that is true freedom. And if we think God is transactional or we try and serve the transactional gods of our world of fame and power, we find ourselves never measuring up and it's always one step more and we never have enough. And that is servitude. And God calls us to freedom, to righteousness. And so finally, in Israel, after finding themselves enslaved again, the Israelites will repent And they'll bring about the last cycle, the last step, supplication and deliverance. Judges 2, verses 17 through 19. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died... The people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So we're going to see this pattern all the way through Judges, this idea of they're walking with God and they're up on a high spot, and then they start to serve 
these easier gods of the world around them and they start to slide down into servitude and then they get enslaved by another country and they repent when they're at their lowest and they turn to God and God sends them a judge and they come back to the Lord and then they begin it all over again. And we'll see this undulating cycle all throughout Judges, time and time again. And the pattern continues in Judges. But doesn't it seem to do that sometimes for us as well? Where we start walking with the Lord and things start going good and we start to not worry about what the world thinks of us and not worry about whether or not we have all the things we think we are deserved. And then we get confident and then we start trying to make God act with us transactionally and things start to slide. And we find ourselves at a low spot and, and things aren't working. And, and it seems like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and God isn't near to us. And we realize that it's because we've brought sin into our life and so we repent and we turn back to the Lord. And don't we do the same thing just on a more rapid cycle? We get arrogant thinking we can go it alone. We treat God as transactional. We sin, we fail. We fall short and we suffer the consequences. We repent. We turn back to a gracious and loving God. So the call for us throughout this series is to evaluate ourselves. How have we replicated the pattern of the judges as Christians today? Where have we missed God's call to talk about our faith in an ongoing and life-giving way to our community around us? How do we avoid these pitfalls? And so break the crazy cycle. And so we look to scripture and we learn from those who have gone before us. And we study these case studies and chaos, not to revel in their folly, but to learn so that we can avoid the same mistakes again and again and again. And so for the remainder of our series, we're gonna walk through the book of Judges. And we'll make some detours. We're gonna, we're gonna stay in this timeline of the Judges, but we're starting with Joshua. We're gonna stop and visit Ruth along the way, which takes place during the same time. And we're gonna end with Samuel, who's really the start of a new book of the Bible, but really the last judge of Israel before the kings take over. So we're gonna look at these and all the way through the goal, aside from learning the biblical story, the goal is to look at our lives and go, what are the lessons that I can take from these case studies and apply them to my life and so avoid the same pitfalls today? In the same way, we look to others who have fallen from faith, not to celebrate that we have stood while that person has fell, but to learn. And, and as Mike Cosper puts it in his podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which is a podcast about Mars Hill Church that had a very public fall from faith. It's not about glorying in their fall, it's a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. And as we look at Judges, that's what we're gonna see, that despite all of this chaos, God is still at work. And despite the chaos in our lives, God is still at work. And we will look for him to work again. And, and one last quote from David Howard as we end. The book of Judges is one of sharp contrast with the book of Joshua. It consists of a series of independent episodes, all joined by a common motif of Israel's apostasy and God's faithfulness. The overall impression is one of near chaos in Israel's political and spiritual life, salvaged only by God's repeated intervention and provision.
So when we find that chaos in our life, the goal is to look for God to be at work in those broken places. And to know that even when life around us seems to be falling apart, God is good and God is faithful. And we can meet God in the broken chaos of our life. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you are at work even in a broken world. God, I thank you that as we continue to look in the book of Judges, God, we will see time and again how faithful you are despite the unfaithfulness of the people. God, that your faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. God, we thank you for that. We confess that we have fallen short. God, that we have left things undone that should have been done. God, that we have done things that we should not have done. God, all of which we need to repent for. But God, despite our unfaithfulness to you, God, you have been so faithful to us. And Lord, for that we are grateful. And for that we praise you in your name. Amen. As we end this morning from 1 John. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Go in peace and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.